Good afternoon, everyone. Get some good lunch? All right. I am our uh, church planner. Just planted our first ARC church in Hawaii last year. My name is Sean Withy Allen. We were that little tiny, tiny X way in the middle of nowhere on that really cool map. Um, And so we call this time of day the Kanak Attack. All right, we've heard it called the itis or whatever it is, you know, when you just eat a lot of great food, we call it the Kanak attack and you just kind of pass out. And so we've cranked up the AC to about 45 degrees to make sure we help keep us all awake. No, I'm just kidding. But let's do this. Let's, if we can, move forward a little bit. This is a pretty huge room um, and uh, Pastor Keith wants to really have a great, more of a conversation um, in this session. And uh, I'm looking forward to hearing what he said, just getting a little bit of his heart for this time together. Um, hope you guys came with some, some questions, some things you want to learn because he, uh, he definitely wants to get into some of that. And uh, I'm actually stalling because I'm waiting for him to come back in the room right now, which is why I'm talking longer than I was anticipating. But any people just about to plant a church in the room, anyone here? All right, where are you going? Illinois, all right, very cool. Anyone else, did any of the hands come up? Where are you guys? Tampa, Florida. My aunt lives there. Omaha, Nebraska, excellent. Scott Frost fan? There you go, yeah. He stole Mackenzie Milton from the University of Hawaii, so I'm a little bit upset about that. So, yes, all right, did Pastor Keith make it back in yet? All right, he's on his way, fantastic. So a little bit about Mana Church out there in Hawaii. We had the privilege of planting uh, last year and we used the ARC model, ARC process, and I don't know where in the world we would be without it. Um, And it's been such a blessing to us and a lot of the relationships and the friendships that we've developed over the time. Um, Being back here, just getting re-inspired by the vision, being everything. And also like, if you've planted a church the last five years or less, anyone else in the room? Few of us, yeah. SMU, you guys in Dallas area? Atlanta, okay. Yeah, and so I think, you know, as he's coming in, something I could just encourage and say is what's cool about everywhere is people say, wow, Hawaii, this got some challenges. There's not a single city on this planet that's not going to have challenges. When we talk about planting churches, growing churches, I think that's why I love being here is because every single one of us faces unique challenges, but learning from each other, growing from each other. And so that's why I'm thrilled to learn from Pastor Keith and, and uh, hopefully hearing from some of you guys as well and your experiences throughout this time together. But I'm done now. The man is back. Pastor Keith planted Elevate Life Church in Frisco, Texas, 18 years ago. And uh, I'm going to give all the time to him. Welcome, sir. Take it over. Thank you. Thank you so much. And thank y'all for being here today. Uh, how many of you have never heard of me? How many of you have heard of me? Okay. Most of you haven't, and that's great. So uh, we did, we started 18 years ago, and um, I want to just take a minute and uh, introduce my wife to you. She, um, in fact, I'll just, we'll see how it goes, but um, she, uh, she has been with me since we were 15 years old. And so we dated all through high school, but uh, she helped me plant the church. So Sheila, go ahead and stand if you would. This is my wife, Sheila. So uh, what I wanted to do, I'm gonna, I'm gonna share some thoughts with you, but what I wanted to do is really put the ball in your court because I could give you a message and hopefully it would be something that would speak to you and that kind of thing, and I've got that prepared. But I'd, I'd really like to talk about what you'd like to talk about. Um, again, we have been going for 18 years. We were a pre-ARC church. Um, we planted in Frisco, Texas. Frisco, when we planted in Frisco, it was uh, 29,000 people. Today, it's 160,000 people. So I wish I could tell you we had 100,000 100, people in our church, but we don't. Uh, we should, but, uh, but, uh, during, since, since we have uh, planted our church, uh, within the first two years, we bought 27 acres in our fourth year, we built our first, um, building, which was 8.7 million. And then, um, it, when we were eight years old, we started the building uh, project that we're in now, uh, that we finished in 2012, which is a $38 million building. 
And so it's been a progression of not only um, growth and buildings, but also building servant leader teams. And so I say that all up front because, um, you know, when you have a staff of over 100 people, when you have, we've also started a, um, a charter school and um, recently completed a $20 million building for that. And uh, so there's a lot of, my point is there's a lot of questions. I want to, I want to provoke you to, from uh, team staff development to servant leadership development, um, to uh, raising up financial leaders, to whatever you would like to talk about. I want to just, like I said, I'm not saying any of that to uh, say, look what we've done and look what we've not done. I just want you to know what we have done up front in the last 18 years. It kind of gives you just a microcosm of maybe uh, just some, some thoughts along the way that, you know, what were our, what were our growth um, sort of inhibitors? What are some things maybe that inhibited our growth? What are some things that propelled our growth? Uh, just any, any, nothing is off limits, okay? What's been our biggest challenges? But I want to just uh, start with uh, really my, the, the context of my message was my greatest life lessons. And, uh, and the first thing that I would say to you is this, is that you have a fingerprint that nobody else has to leave an imprint that nobody else can leave. And one of my greatest life lessons is to understand that. Let me just put some context to that. Uh, I did not grow up in a ministry home. Uh, I, I felt like that, you know, I was this little boy and I was in church and, and I felt God called me to the ministry and I had no idea what that meant. I, I just, in fact, I told my, my mother was on one side of me at the altar. My father was on the other side. I mean, my grandmother was on the other side of me at the altar. And I said, I don't know if I'm supposed to be a missionary. I mean, I'm nine years old, but I'm just bawling my eyes out. I'm thinking this is what God's called me to do. And, uh, and so no, but nobody in my family knew what it meant. Uh, and, uh, and so I had no frame of reference of, you know, what ministry was, what it was supposed to be. But my father was a Dallas policeman. And so, um, my dad was the original CSI before they called him that, uh, on the JFK assassination in Dallas. He was the first man up at the Texas Book Depository, found Lee Harvey Oswald's rifle, found his chicken box, did the crime scene investigation for the JFK assassination. So that's, that's my dad. And so for 50 years in Dallas, he passed away three years ago, but for 50 years in Dallas, he was the uh, guy that was on the news every anniversary of the JFK assassination, talking about what he saw first, because he saw it first, and what his uh, philosophy was. You know, was it a conspiracy and all of that? But so uh, I grew up and I can remember sitting in a church service um, and I'm going to kind of go back and forth here just for a second, but I was in a church service when I was 14 years of age and in Grand Prairie, Texas. And uh, the pastor said, look at your hand. And so I'm going to ask y'all to do that. Just look at your hand, everybody. And he said, at the end of your fingertip is a fingerprint that nobody has ever had. So look up here at me now. And I I thought, well, I've heard that before because my father was in fingerprinting. He was a forensics guy. But then the next thing is what the Holy Spirit spoke to me. The first time I can ever, I don't know if you can remember the first time where you felt like God spoke to you, but the first time God spoke to me was in that service when I was 14 years old. And so I heard from the pastor, the pastor say, you have a fingerprint that nobody else has. And then I heard the Lord say to leave an imprint that nobody else can leave. And that's where I can tell you, that's where my journey started uh, the clarification that, hey, that, that, and the older I got, that, that you have a fingerprint that nobody has ever had in history, that nobody ever will have in the future. And for a hundred years, they didn't know what to do with that fingerprint forensics, in forensic science, except to identify somebody at the scene of a crime. And that's how the fingerprint was used. In fact, I released a book in 2013 called Your Divine Fingerprint, The Force That Makes You Unstoppable. And, um, and that same year was when iPhone introduced fingerprint technology on the phone uh, that you could open the world to you by your own fingerprint. And so, uh, but this thought process, again, now going back to my childhood, was 
this revelation by the time I was 14 that I was very unique. And I think sometimes, especially those of you that are church planters or, or otherwise in this room, sometimes we think like, what is it that I bring that somebody else brings? You know, what is it, what, what, what is it that's unique or distinctive about me that, that, that's, you know, that, that's something that's special? So today, um, I just came across this. Uh, Inc. Magazine just uh, put out an article about Richard Branson, who gives his best career advice in 11 words. I thought this was pretty interesting in relationship to what I was going to talk to you, at least initially, about today. And um, so anyway, it talks about him. As a boy, he was he struggled with dyslexia. And in a blog on the subject, he wrote a letter to his younger self. In other words, if I was gonna say something to my younger self, what would I say? And here's what Richard Branson said. I know you're struggling at school and I wanted to give you some advice on how to become the best you can be, even when it's difficult. And even when you feel like the world is against you. By the way, if you're a church planter, or if you've already planted a church, you have felt that exact thing. You, it, it, no, nobody hardly wakes up every day going, hey, everybody's for me. Everybody wants me to win. This is awesome. I'm very special. So he's, he's given this advice to his younger self. He says, I know you're struggling at school. I know I, I wanted to give you some advice on how to become the best you you can be. Even when it's difficult and even when you feel like the world is against you, you should never see being different as a flaw or think something is wrong with you. Being different is your biggest asset and will help you succeed. That was just today. And I was, I was, my first point in talking to you today was this. You have a fingerprint that nobody else has to leave an imprint that nobody else can leave. But you've got to know what that fingerprint is. And of course, that's what my book is about. I'm not trying to peddle my book to you, but I encourage you to get my book. Because... What I do is I, I, I really talk to you about how to discover, develop, and deploy your unique fingerprint. And there's a study guide that goes with it and that kind of thing. But, but this was born out of a, a life message. Um, uh, again, I mentioned to you, my father was a policeman. And my father uh, didn't take me to school every day, but every day he took me to school, this happened. He'd drive me to school in his squad car and I would, I would slide right over next to him and put my arm around him. Now, I was about 11 years old in the seventh grade. And honestly, I was almost as big as my dad in the seventh grade. I'm 6'6", six, six, my dad is 5'9". So by the time I was in the seventh grade, I wore a size 14 shoe and I was almost as big as my dad. And I would, I would slide right over next to him in his squad car and I'd put my arm around him and we'd drive to school like this. He'd just look straight ahead. And, uh, and my father, if, if, if there ever was a stoic, it would be my dad. And I don't know if it goes just with the kind of a cop persona, but my dad always drove real slow. He, he was just, he was always in, in, you know, in slow motion, didn't say much, didn't, didn't, well, this will kind of show you what I'm talking about. So every day he took me to school, this was the routine. He'd drive me up front of the school and he'd look straight ahead and he'd say, have a, have a good day, Keith. And I'd look at him right in his ear and I'd say, I love you, dad. And he'd look straight ahead, just shake his head. I go, now dad, repeat this after me. This happened every day he took me to school. Now he didn't take me to school every day, but every day he took me to school, this happened. I'd say, repeat this after me, dad. Say, I, he'd go, I love, love you, you. I said, that's great. Then I would take his face and I would turn his face towards me and I'd look him right in the eye and he would go like this. I go, no, dad, look at me. And I'd say, I love you, dad. And then I'd kiss him right on the lips and he'd shake his head and he'd go, okay, Keith, okay, have a good day. And I'd get out. Now in the seventh grade, I was already bigger than most of my classmates, but I'd always have a few guys that would gather when they would see our, my dad's squad car, they would gather because they knew this was going to happen. And so uh, I'd get out of the car and they'd all kind of be laughing, but it was a, it was a cool thing. You know, it's like they, they liked to see that. It was, uh, you know, just kind of a strange deal. Well, 
my mother one day, she said, Keith Allen, my middle name's Allen. She goes, Keith Allen, you, your father is a public servant. And when you ride in his squad car, you're, you're almost on top of him. You've got your arm around him. She goes, it just, it just doesn't look good. And so one day she was telling me that and I just started crying. And I said, mom, God, God showed me something. She goes, I remember I'm 11. I said, you know how dad didn't have a dad? She goes, yes. And I said, God showed me to love him with the kind of love that he never got from his dad. And I said, but I, I mean, it makes me emotional talking about it now. I said, but I want your permission. I said, I think I'm supposed to love him and hug him and kiss him. I think I'm really supposed to do that, mom, but I want your permission to do it. She goes, yes, that's exactly what your father needs. Yes, do that, do that. So, so that's, that's, I didn't know to call it that at that time, but that was my unique fingerprint was to love my dad the way he, he, he didn't, he didn't have a dad. He didn't, he didn't know how to love. Well, now we went to church all growing up. I was, I was in church. My mom loved God. My dad did not have a relationship with the Lord. And my dad was a cop again, worked three different jobs just to make decent money. He retired in 1975 from being a policeman making $994 a week which in today's money, it'd be about $40,000 a year. But you know, he, he always worked extra jobs to just provide for us. And, and uh, so, so my, my relationship with my dad was, I was just, I was freed after that conversation with my mom, just to be to my dad how I was and not worry about what it looked like or anything else. And so um, fast forward, we, you know, we're in church. My dad doesn't know the Lord. He'd go into church, literally fold his arms and close his eyes. I remember asking one time, I said, dad, why do you close your eyes in church? He goes, well, church is really for y'all. I just rest in church. And yet he was on the board of an assembly of God church. And what was amazing was, um, he was making decisions with other board members and my dad didn't even know, the, he didn't even know the Lord, but he was just Jimmy, the cop, the good guy, you know? And so uh, when he was 67, he had a, a massive heart attack and, um, and they didn't think he was going to make it. In fact, when they did the heart surgery, the most critical part of heart surgery is not when they do the, the surgery on your heart, but they put you on a breathing machine, a lung machine and a heart beating machine. And, um, and it's when the heart surgery is over and they try to take you off the heart beating machine and off the lung machine to see if it's going to work. Well, it didn't work. And so for four days, they put him in the Baylor intensive care unit and, uh, they didn't know if he was going to make it or not. They tied his hands down to, on the bed and, uh, had a breathing tube down his throat. He couldn't speak. And I told the doctor, I said, listen, I'm going to go in there. Uh, every hour on the hour till this thing turns. And I'm going to pray over my dad. And the, the cardiologist said, no, you can't. So I just kind of looked down at him. I said, said no, listen, I'm really going to do that. And he goes, okay, yeah, you can do that. So, so anyway, so every hour on the hour, we would go and I would, I would hold this, his hand on this side. My brother would hold his hand on the other side. And I'd say, look at me, dad. And for the first time since I was 11, he didn't go like this. He would look right in my eyes. And I'd say, dad, you're going to live and not die. God's going to raise you up off this bed. It's going to be amazing. You're going to see the hand of God and you're going to see God like you've never seen God before. And every day for four days, every hour on the hour, I'd pray for him. And uh, on the fourth day, they took the breathing tube out. He could breathe. They took him off the heart beating machine and his heart worked. And the first thing my dad did when they unlocked his hands, he reached his hands up like this. And this is for the first time in my life, I'm seeing this. He, and I'm in my thirties now. He said, God is real. God is real. God is real. So, so uh, anyway, I just wanted to show you a couple of pictures to give you context. Uh, so this is me and my dad on my motorcycle. This is his last trip with me before he died. This is us on the beach. Uh, yeah, that's really my dad. And, uh, and so, and then this, this was us at, the, at, at my church, right out, outside my garage. I had no idea somebody was capturing that. That was the last time I kissed my dad, except for the day that he died. 
And uh, a lot of people, are, they're like, okay, you can take that off. There, a lot of people are uncomfortable with that because they think, man, what, you know, what, is, what is that? Like, do you have to be that kind of dad? No, but that's the kind of son I was. So here's what I'm trying to tell you. I don't know what your fingerprint is, but you've got to know what your fingerprint is and you've got to own it and live in it and be you and let God do through you what he wants to do. So interestingly enough, we have a very special ministry at our church to men. God's called me to raise up men. God's called me to, to, to make mighty men for the glory of God. That's part of the passion that I live with now. Why? Because I had a dad that eventually, by the way, my dad, like I said, he came to Christ and from 67 until the day before his 84th birthday, when he died, he loved the Lord, you know? And so that's, that, he's, he's my number one conversion story. So uh, to me, that's, that if, if I did nothing else on earth but that, that would be, that would be enough. So anyway, I just wanna, I wanna stop because like I said, I've got some stuff that I can tell you, but as it relates to life lessons, it was me deciding that, you know what? I have a fingerprint that nobody else has to leave an imprint that nobody else can leave. And that's what I'm gonna do. And that's the picture of every church, by the way. Every church has its own unique fingerprint. For everything in the natural, there's a supernatural correlation. And so again, as you discover, and as you develop, and as you deploy your fingerprint that leaves an imprint in the world, you're gonna build a family and a tribe, a church that does that same thing. So, okay, I'm done with my part. I can, I can, I can go on, I've got more stuff, and I'll share something else if nobody has any questions or anything. But I wanna talk about what you guys wanna talk about. And uh, just as a church planter, it's wide open been doing it for 18 years. I don't have all the answers, but hopefully I can add some value to you and help you today. Yes, sir. So this is totally selfish. Okay. Sure. Okay. Sure. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, again, part of, part of, uh, Part of what you have to understand is, and I wish I had a whiteboard, but I'll just say it like this. Uh, every leader has some type of vision, which is what makes them a leader, okay? Most, most, uh, most leaders who have a vision jump to strategy. So they go from, okay, here's my vision. So now, now strategically, how do we roll this out? I got, you know, I've got 10 grand in the bank, we've got, we've got this to do, this to do, this to do. So here's what happens. Most people jump straight from vision into strategy and therefore their strategies oftentimes are more misses than hits. Um, what I've learned, one of my lessons that I've learned uh, in, in these 18 years and still have to work very strategically on this is that between vision and whatever strategy you choose to implement, whether it's go now or not go now, whether it's let's, let's take the 10,000 and let's allocate the resources based on this, this, and this, okay? Um, that's, that's all strategy, but there's a bridge between vision and strategy and it's called structure. And, I, and again, I don't have a lot of time just to dive into this because this is a whole big piece, but the structure piece is the most important thing. In fact, if I were to ask you, uh, what the most important part of a water fountain is, okay? Just anybody say out loud, what is it? Anybody? Okay, so some people would say the water, some people would say the button you get the water out of, but the, the most important part of a water fountain is the same thing that's important about you, and that's the unseen part of you. You can't see structure. You know, the most important part about me being up here doing this right here is not my brain, it's not my heart. The truth is, if I didn't have bones, there would be no, there would be no structure. So you've got to make sure as the leader 
that, that the pace is put in the context of the structure of where you are, okay? Uh, because money gets wasted if there's not great structure. Um, you move too fast on things if you don't have the structure to sustain it. So again, one of my, one of, one of my biggest lessons and it continues to be a biggest les- big lesson is not just to be the vision caster. I'm not trying to hold anybody back, nor am I just trying to push anybody forward. What I'm trying to do is once I have the vision, the next step for me is to build the structure that can make whatever strategy that I implement possible. Okay, so I hope that helps. Okay, good. Yeah, back here. Okay. Um, let, me, let me just see. Um, does anybody have a pen? I can, I can draw something where it's... Where it's uh, Jeremy, come hold this mic for me. If you, oh, if, I, they're probably recording is why we need to do that. So if I could, if I could just kind of show it to you this way. Um, so, so here's vision. Okay. And I'm going to just write an S for strategy. The bridge is the structure. Okay. So just, just think about the bridge there. So I'm going to draw three lines and then a foundation underneath here. So I've got all this vision, you know, Hey, here's what I want to do. Here's the kind of church I want to have. Here's and, and then again, immediately, most people move right to, okay, what strategies do we need to implement to make sure that that happens? Lower it down just a little bit. There you go. And, uh, but that's not it. Over here, if you can just picture this, and I, we're, we're going a little bit deeper than I had planned on going on this, but hopefully it'll help somebody because you're asking. So this is people. Okay. This is culture. And this is, I'll just call this facilities. Now, so if you, if you can just picture that as a bridge, okay, I've got this vision. What strategies are we going to use to make this vision happen? You know, again, people think, all right, it, it's pretty obvious. Like you got, you said you had how many people? Eight people, eight people. So they become these eight over here. They become a part of your structure, okay? So based on those people you got are are gonna determine even what strategy you choose. Everybody get that? So based on who I have, so the people. So this is both, both my team and this is both the servant leaders, that's what we call them, not volunteers, but, and the people that we put in place, okay? So for instance, at my first um, interest meeting, when we went around and we had 23 people in our first interest meeting, uh, we established, everybody that was there was a team leader. And so we established based on the people that we had, who was gonna be over what team. So culture, what is culture? Lots been taught about culture. It's either by default or by design, but culture can be basically summed up in three words. And that is it's attitudes, beliefs, and behaviors. So what are gonna be the attitudes, beliefs, and behaviors in the context of what God's called you to do? And then what facilities do we have to work with? All right, so... So is this helping a little bit? Okay, and then, and then this is the big one. And this is the one that's underground. This is the big cement block that's holding up these three pilings that are gonna make your structure work no matter what you're doing. And that is your core values. So what's the big deal about core values? Thank you. What's the big deal about core values? Your core values are, are your what matters most. In other words, I can't tell you what matters most to you. Uh, you've got to be the one that understands what's most important to you. So, so in, this is the thing I was going to say, we'll see if I was going to tell it or not, but when she was 15 and I had just turned 16, we had moved from Dallas, Texas to Slido, Louisiana. And, uh, and so uh, the first day that I was in Slido, at Slido High School, the basketball coach came to me and he said, when I was, uh, when I was uh, 16, I was about 6'3", I weighed about 175 pounds wet. I mean, if I turned sideways and stuck my tongue out, it looked like a zipper. I mean, I was skinny. 
and, but, but I was tall and the basketball coach said, hey, do you play basketball? I said, yeah. He said, we're playing the Salmon Spartans, our crosstown rivals tonight. Come sit on the sidelines of the game and watch the game. And I said, okay. So I, my first day in town, I mean, I'm sitting on the sidelines of the basketball game and I look and all of a sudden I see uh, across the court this. They were cheerleaders. And so I spotted this girl and I turned to the guy next to me who I didn't even know. And I said, who is that? He said, well, she's going steady with somebody. That was the word back then. She's going steady with somebody. There's somebody right down there that looks just like her. And it was her. So she has an identical twin sister. So that night, literally, I thought in my mind, well, one's taken and one is mine. So, so after the game, we went out to the hangout, which was McDonald's. We get there. I walked right up to the table where she was sitting with all her little cheerleader friends. Come here, baby. Come here, Sheila. And um, yes. you want to come sit with me just for a second? You sit right there. Okay. <laughs> and because uh, they're going to get to hear a little bit of the story. So, so I walk up to the table and I said, I looked right at her and I said, uh, hi. She looked up at me. She goes, hi. And all our little cheerleader friends got up and walked away. And I said, uh, would you like a Dr. Pepper? And she goes, yes. So make a long story short. We drank, she drank her first Dr. Pepper today. Your favorite drink is? Dr. Pepper. Okay, so, so. I hated Dr. Pepper, but what he said when I asked him, why did you get me a Dr. Pepper? Because normally, like you'd say, you know, would you like a Coke? And he comes back maybe with, we always call Coke everything, 7-Up, it didn't matter. So when he came back and he brought me this Dr. Pepper, I took a sip, I go, it was horrible. I hated Dr. Pepper. I thought it tastes like cough syrup. But you know, he was cute and I wanted to impress, but I just wanted to ask, why did you get me a Dr. Pepper? He goes, because all the girls in Dallas love Dr. Pepper. And I thought if all the girls in Dallas like Dr. Pepper, then I was gonna like Dr. Pepper because that's where he was from. So on my notes, put up the next thing, guys. You gotta know what matters most. You gotta know what matters most to you so you can live a life that most matters. And so that you can build a church that not only you wanna to go to, but that's based on what matters most to you based on your fingerprint. It's very important because every church is gonna be different. You're not gonna be a church of the Highlands. You know, I loved what, uh, what the one guy said uh, when he said, hey, this weekend, 300 people were saved at church of the Highlands. You know? I thought that was so brilliant when he was saying that. Uh, but, uh, but the thought process where this came from was one month later, I was over at her house. I asked her to be my girlfriend. She said, I said, she was about to say yes, weren't you? And I said, but before you say yes, I said, I have this philosophy about how relationships are supposed to work. So I'm 16, she's 15, and I drew this triangle. And on the left-hand side, I put her name. On the right-hand side, I put my name. And at the top, I put God. And I said, this is how I think. So now I want you to just think church leadership just for a second. Structure. If you'll be your best for God, and I drew an error, and I'll be my best for God, I think he'll make whatever we do work. How does that sound to you? And what were you thinking at that point in your first leadership seminar at 16 and 15? I thought that was nice, but it was just, it was a little maybe deep. And I'm just thinking I'm going to say, yes, I'll be your girlfriend. No, we'll just, get, just get through this seminar so we can get on with it. So my first leadership seminar was with her. And so, so I said, I said, well, listen, so, so you agree if you'll be your best for God and I'll be my best for God that we'll, we'll, we'll have a chance to have a great relationship. She goes, yeah. I said, well, here's a couple of other things. I said, first of all, the Bible says, don't let the sun go down on your anger and give your enemy the devil a foothold. So if we're going to be girlfriend and boyfriend, let's don't practice divorce and walk away from each other when we get mad. Let's really try to resolve conflict. Are you good with that? And you said... Yes. She goes, I like to talk. I go, well, it's going to be a little bit more of the talking. I said, it's just, it's just really deciding not to walk away and leave things unresolved. By the way, this is how I run my church too. So in other words, this is what we teach. Do you know that most people haven't been taught conflict resolution? So they just walk away. But I'm, I'm 16 and 15. I'm saying, hey, this is, kind of, this is kind of how I see it. And I'm casting the vision. And so I said, uh, I said, well, here's, here's the other thing. I said, uh, today's the 20th, it was January 20th, 1976. And I said, so on this day, 
for as long as we're together, I'm going to celebrate you. And so she was kind of looking at me and she said, okay. And I said, so will you be my girlfriend? Yes, that all sounded wonderful. And to this day, he has celebrated me on the 20th of every month and he keeps track of the months and I have no idea, I just know the years. And so he's, what he did even during that time that we didn't realize is that he was establishing core values in our relationship. And one of those was the core value of honor, that he was gonna honor me. So this is our 508th month. And the reason I share that with you is because there's a core value of honor in our church because that's important to me. Now, here's what would have made our relationship not work. If I said, I'm gonna honor you on the 20th, and by the way, somehow I allowed a, 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 uh, I allowed a thought process in my mind that she was actually gonna celebrate me on the 20th. In other words, that's my fingerprint. That's the imprint that I bring into this marriage without the expectation of her giving me that same fingerprint back. So every month for 508 months in a row, on the 20th, I've celebrated her, honored her with a gift, a card, an email. By the way, you think that keeps a marriage fresh? You think it, do you think it keeps, when, when there's that kind of spirit of honor that, that you know that, that there's an atmosphere. Remember we talked about culture, attitudes, behaves, believe, uh, behaves and belie- uh, beliefs, behaviors, beliefs, and attitudes, that that's the kind of attitude that we decided to have in our marriage without the expectation that she would do the same thing back to me. And I think that's what we need to realize as it relates to even building churches and building a family, uh, building a marriage, building uh, uh, children, you know, building uh, the family that we have both organically, our families of origin and our families of choice. As the lead person, you're going to set not just the atmosphere, but you're gonna help establish a culture where what's important to you is gonna become important to them. What's amazing, and my son was supposed to be here with me, he's 30 years old and he's now, he, he's, he oversees our staff. But um, my son and his wife, they celebrate on the first of every month. My two daughters are married and both of them and their spouses uh, celebrate on the fifth and the seventh of each month. And I didn't ask them to do that, but because I established that in my family, there's that now spirit of honor with my kids in their own marriage. And so it's a picture again of, of whatever you decide, whatever you decide is, is important to you in the church family that you're building, that is going to be either by default, if it's not that big a deal to you, then it won't be that big a deal to them. But if it is a big deal to you, then it'll be a big deal to them. So in our, in our family, um, there's, we call it the big five. There's five major core values. And again, I just drew that, you know, I don't expect you to, like I said, just to necessarily remember that because I didn't have anything even planned to go down this road. But based on your question back there, this is the most important thing for any vision or any strategy you'll ever have is to stay on course with your what matters most. Okay, so anyway, okay, yes. Um, so based on that example, um, I wasn't saying things like that at 16. Yeah. Um, and I think that um, even with the example you gave with your father earlier, we can see that you have maybe like a natural gift of dad or, you know, God just blessed you with like relationships and leadership. Mm-hmm. So for you, as you progress as a pastor, what were some things that you did to not rely solely on your natural gift? How did you continually grow yourself as a relationship with God, your business? And- yeah. Uh, the main thing is, and, and this, this sounds cliche-ish, but I don't want it to, is I staff to my weakness. So in other words, the people that are around me are strong where I'm not. I'm very strategic about that. So how do I, the number one way I grow myself beyond myself is having people around me who definitely have strengths that I don't have. And, uh, you know, I'm very, hey, there's the mountain, let's take the mountain. She's very much, how's that gonna make everybody feel? 
if we just start charging up that mountain. No, we're ready, let's go. No, but how's that gonna make everybody feel? We're concerned about that, right? Well, you are. (laughs) I'm saying, hey, like Joshua and Caleb, let's take the mountain. So my point is, is that almost all of my family, with one exception, my middle daughter, whose name's Keela, half Keith, half Sheila, um, almost all of them are completely opposite than me, including her. So I have made her voice second only to God and everything that she says, I weigh very, very heavily. But she's always said that to me, that my voice is second to God. So you know what that does as a wife? It keeps me from nagging, keeps me from uh, always wanting my way or for my voice to be heard because I know that he's open to hear what I, my opinion and, or things that, that I think are important. But then what it does for me also is it causes me to be very careful about what I do say because my voice weighs so much for him as far as how important it is to him. So sometimes I'll say to him, listen, I just want to give my opinion. This is not thus saith the Lord. Just process this. I'm just going to lay this, you know, before you. And then you evaluate if you think this is a direction or if this is good for you, because I know how much my opinion weighs for him. And I think a lot of times, even in ministry, you know, uh, with men, you can just be, you know, this is what we need to do. And this is what I think God has said. But if you allow your wife to be that voice also, uh, you won't hear her nagging you or feel like that, you know, she's getting more involved and not really going the direction of what you feel like God's sending you, but that, you know, she becomes that just because you're, you're open to her voice. She becomes that voice that really does help you because you usually are, you always marry somebody that's opposite from you and thinks differently, sees things differently. Just like he said, you know, I'm the one that is more about the feeling and how it makes people feel. And so he can just, you know, charge the mountain, like he said, and not really consider those things, but it's like, oh, okay, we do need to think about that. Or in between, uh, in between our services, she'll say, I think you shouldn't say that next service. And I say, thank you for correcting me and helping me be better. And I know that sounds crazy, but that's the way it works. And so by the way, our- but when I do come to him, I come to my approach to him is yes, you put your hands I put my, my hands face. on his face and I'll say, I just want I know you it's to, coming. Yes, I want you to know your message was so good. Yes, thank and you. I really do appreciate, you thank know, and just you. the things that you said were just amazing. Thank you. But the one But thing, everything before but doesn't matter. <laughs> always always just remember this. If you're ever in a conversation, somebody says, you're amazing, it's incredible, but just remember, nothing else matters, just get ready. But it does matter because it was all really good, but there may have been something that I just felt like you wouldn't, you know, just across the board, maybe wouldn't be as well received in the next service that would help him. Yeah, so, so to answer your question very specifically, she's my teacher because I've made her my teacher, but guess what? I've made all of my lead team my teachers. I've made my children my teachers. In other words, how do I learn and how do I grow? I choose really to humble myself. It's a choice to humble myself and listen to people that are around me and say, hey, like one day we were through church and, you know, again, if you're a pastor, you'll understand this. I was just wiped out. I mean, huge day, great things happen. I said, well, and I really wasn't looking for a compliment. I said, hey, how'd you think things went? I mean, you thought I, it went so well that you I, were yeah, going to get a compliment. I, well, I did think that, <laughs> I did, but, I, but I wasn't looking for it. But I thought, hey, I thought it went well. Didn't you think it went well? And there was dead silence. And all of a sudden, after about 30 seconds, she goes, tweak, tweak, tweak. We've got to tweak everything. You're preaching way too long. You're hurting the nursery. You're, you're going to hurt our servant leaders. Okay, here we go. So... I'm just telling you, as the leader, you're not the one that everybody just listens to. If you're a great leader, you've got great people around you that are helping you grow and helping you develop. And I just choose to, I just choose to lead that way. You know, well, really, because so. you want to have the people around you that truly do have your best interest in mind and that are really helping you grow the church. So he surrounds himself with people that he knows that love him, that so, want to grow the church. The core so. values, the what matters most to me, my number one core value is relationship. So, so that determines the people in my life, that ter- determines the teams I hire, 
That determines who I pour into. That determines who I spend my time with. My number one core value is relationship. So that determines the culture that I'm creating. What kind of culture are we going to have? What kind of attitudes are we going to have? What kind of behaviors are we going to have? You know, uh, we have, again, I won't, it's, it's too much to go into, but we have what's called AAPs, Assess, Address, Progress. Every quarter, each one of my executive staff do an AAP with me. They address what has been in their area. They assess what is in their area. And then they tell me they progress what is possible. So they make the presentation every quarter. And so that's how in our relational culture, they know not only that I hear from them, hey, here's what has been in my area. Here's what is in my area. And here's what's possible in my area. My question in those AAPs is, okay, how can I make your what is possible in the next quarter happen? And so again, that, that's relational, all right? So, uh, so again, these are just, I know we're kind of opening the floodgates on you a little bit, but hopefully it's helping you. Can yeah. I ask just a quick follow-up? Yeah, sure. What you mentioned. So you talked about surrounding yourself with people. Um, my wife and I, we launched back in January. And when you're launching a new church, we don't necessarily always have the luxury of having 20 people to interview and choosing the best Right, right, right. So when you think about like the beginning stages as a church, yes. like what are some things that maybe before you had that luxury you would implement to create? Yeah, you, you, you teach just the same thing I'm teaching. In other words, what matters most to you guys. And so that's part of what resonates with people. They're going to be attracted to you, now, especially higher level people. We have, we have some higher level, that 7% of our church has earned doctorates. So 33% uh, have their masters. And so we attract, and it's not because we're in a smart area. That's not it. It's you attract what you decide is important and it starts attracting the kind of people that you are. You know, I'm just saying it really does. And that's, 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 that's a real deal. Should we reach everybody? Yes, we're gonna reach everybody. But my point is you're talking about lead team and people that are gonna be around you. The more clear you are about what matters most to you, uh, like personal growth and development, it's a big deal to me. So the number we did a church census when we were 10 years old, and most people in America, the, the reason most people go to church in America, number one reason is to feel better. Number two reason is to get hope. Number one reason people come to our church is for personal growth and development. So that's my unique fingerprint. So if they're going to get hope, they're going to listen to Joel. I mean, for real. But if they want to be prodded to grow, challenge to grow. If they like leadership, they're going to like me. Um, so again, there's, it's, it's, you got to, you got to know who you are, you know? So, so again, so you, he wants to bring hope. So he listens to Joel I do. so that he can get on that side of giving more I'm hope. on Joel's board. So he, I, I he, want put, to, he I, has it in his car on Sirius radio of just like, I'm going to listen to him. I listen to him on the way to go hope. preach. Yeah. So but, but, but I, if I could just say this too, as it relates to, I just remember early on, and, and we still have this where we have what we call servant leaders, which are your volunteers, that, um, that they were high level. We could never afford to hire. I would just say not being so quick to hire and allowing your volunteers yes. or your servant leaders to lead areas. That because you could never afford, nor would you want to put somebody in a place. We weren't quick to put some lower level person that Ever. didn't have the qualifications to, because that's all we could afford. And they could never lead a group of high level businessmen because of they were so low level, but that's all we could afford is that salary. Well, they would never attract anybody on that team because of they were so much more low level. So we put that person that was high level that was, was over level. a paid person. Yeah. I would put a servant leader over a paid person. So as crazy as that sounds in my whole media and creative area. And again, you guys can kind of go see what we do with media and stuff. But in my whole media and creative area, uh, we actually had servant leaders that were overseeing paid people because they were higher level. But we don't do that anymore. But early on, because yeah, early. we just, we needed the, the help and we needed the high quality person so they could attract other high level people. Then we put those people in place. So, so again, uh, to, as specifically as we can to answer your question, first of all, they're going to be attracted not just to you, but to who? You. You're who. They're going to be attracted to y'all, as we say in Texas. And then as you develop and nurture those people, many of our servant leaders have become our paid people. 
That, that's the ideal, right? I mean, every pastor would dream about that. And that, that's what's happened. That's also what's stunted our growth from time to time too. So it's a positive negative. So hopefully that helps. Does that help you answer it a little bit? Okay. Okay. Anybody else? I don't want to bore y'all or I, I really want to help you. Yeah. Um, when I was 37 years old, uh, I was traveling out of a church in Carrollton, Texas, a man by the name of Mike Hayes. He asked me, he said, uh, do you think you'll ever pastor a church? And I said, honestly, I don't think I'm the size foot that can fit into a pastor's shoe. Because again, my, my gift is leadership. I didn't see like the vibe that I was doing really in the church uh, at that time. And uh, so I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't know if I would ever be a pastor because I had no frame of reference of that. And, uh, but I said, I'll answer that question when I'm 40. So to make a long story short, I traveled out of that church. I was just talking to, tell me your name. To Sean. Sean comes out of a, a church of a pastor that I knew that uh, I had a team strike for us, which uh, uh, Jeremy helps lead that, which is a, a strength ministry that travels all over the country. I was with the power team in the early 80s and had my own team called Strike Force. After that, that, we just celebrated 31 years this year. We still have churches without reach with that. But anyway, I was just talking to him that during the, during the, um, the early years uh, for my own uh, development and that kind of thing, uh, I just didn't know if I was gonna ever, ever pastor. I knew I had a heart for God and, and that kind of thing. But, um, but I said, I'll answer that question when I'm 40 years of age. So, so uh, I was a corporate coach in Frisco, Texas of a company called Rodman Corporation. They were the largest corporation in Frisco at that time. And the CEO came to me and he said, you're really our CSO, our chief spiritual officer and our, uh, our VP is dying of brain cancer. And so uh, they've asked if you would do their funeral. And I said, well, I'm not really a funeral guy. You know, I'm, I said, I'm a travel guy, but I'll like, you know, I was doing all kinds of stuff. We were doing marriage seminars. We were, I was doing uh, promise keepers. I was, you know, uh, developing businesses, involved in nine different businesses at that time. I had a coaching business. And, uh, and I said, but I said, I'll, I'll, I'll meet with them. And so anyway, I decided to do the funeral. So the funeral was in Frisco. So I'm the corporate coach of this company. This company had about a thousand employees. There was about a thousand people in that uh, deal. And uh, I met with that person. They said, I, I don't want you to do the eulogy. You don't even know me. I just want Frisco to hear you preach because I would preach once a month at Covenant Church in Dallas with Mike Hayes. And I, did, I just traveled out of that church. And so he had me speak there once a month. And so he said, I just want Frisco to hear you preach. And so I want you to do whatever you want to preach. So I, I just talked about what good people do when bad, when bad things happen. And I'm telling you, gave an invitation. About 500 people gave their life to Christ. I mean, no exaggeration. About at least half the crowd, maybe more. At that, at that funeral, um, uh, the assistant fire chief walks up to me, tears streaming down his eyes, and he says, uh, I've got brain cancer. And, uh, and I think I'm going to die, and I want you to do my funeral. I'm like getting funeral gigs at a funeral, like I, I, I'd never even done a funeral before. I wasn't a pastor. And so I'm 30, at that time I was 30, um, I was 39 and, um, and was just, you know, so, I, so the guy's crying. I go, I'd be honored to do your funeral. Well, three months later, September of, of uh, 1999, um, I'm preaching at Covenant Church. He charters a bus, 50 people from Frisco come over and so Mike Hayes gets up and he's introduced me. He said, I understand we've got a contingency of people from Frisco here today. And uh, would y'all just stand? Well, it was about 200 people. And so they all stood and they were there to hear me preach. So I preached that day. Well, that was that, that guy's last day on earth. He went to be with Jesus. Last thing he did was charter a bus from Frisco to come hear me preach in Carrollton, about 20 miles away. So that was in September, last weekend of September, 1999. On October 31st, I met with Mike Hayes. I said, remember when you asked me if, if you thought I'd ever pastor, I said, if it's not your vision to send me out, I'm still not. But I think God's connecting my heart to Frisco, Texas. And, um, and it was a podunk town, I'm telling you, about 28,000 people, but it was just a, a railroad town. And, uh, and I said, I think I'm supposed to, he goes, well, you know, we bless you to go do that. And so we had our first interest meeting on November 3rd, about, like I said, about 23 people. And I kind of outlined what my core values were and what I felt like we were going to do and that we were going to be focused on establishing a leadership culture within a church. And I said, I know that sounds different, but I said, that's part of who I am. And so, um, so if you guys are on board, we'll go. And so I said, uh, so it was 1999. How many of y'all remember 2000 Y2K? 
So here was my faith, man of faith, man of power. So what happened was, this is November, 1999. I said, well, let's start in January. I said, well, let's don't start the first week of January because you know, Y2K, I mean, we don't know if the computers are gonna work or if the lights are gonna work. Some of y'all don't remember that, but it was a big deal. People were storing water and food and everything else. I said, what's the, what's the, what's the date on the second weekend of January? And they said, January 9th, that was my 40th birthday. So when he was 37, he said, do you think you'll ever pastor? I said, I'll answer that question when I'm 40. And on my 40th birthday, we started the church. And so it kicked off. And so anyway, yeah, that's how we decided to go there. All right, yes. Um, did you have any prior schooling? So like any ministry school, seminary, anything like that? No, uh, I went to Evangel University on a basketball scholarship and got a communications and a Bible degree, but it wasn't... It wasn't with the thought that I'd ever pastor. I just loved God. I wanted to know God. And I felt like God was going to somehow use me. You know, I just didn't know how. But it wasn't like my ambition was to be a pastor. And again, I've got a little bit different philosophy on this. This might be heretical. So I'll end with this. (laughs) I think we're all called to do the same thing. Jesus said, go into all the world. Preach the gospel teaching them to observe all things, baptizing them, you know, make disciples. And then I think he gives gifts because that's what the Bible says, that he gave gifts, apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, and evangelists for the equipping of the saints to do the work of the ministry. So I don't think anybody's called into ministry because I think we're all called to ministry. I think you have to know what your gift is And then decide to take that gift and say, you know what? I think my best and highest use would be to be a pastor. But I'm I'm a pastor and I'm a founding pastor. But I'm also, I I lead six masterminds, which are groups of, uh, there's 120 CEOs that I coach. Uh, I coach 10 pastors a year. I commit to do that personally. Coach 10 pastors a year just to help them in a year process with anything that they need help with. Um, it's, not, it's not in the vein of like a grow or something like they do here at Church of the Highlands, which I think is awesome and wonderful. And that's, that's what most, but mine is more uh, strategic as it relates to your particular leadership gifts and, 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 and competencies and how to develop that. And so uh, we own several businesses. So I, we pastor a mega church, but, but really I'm doing what I'm called to do in the marketplace in business, uh, I, wish I, I wish that I wasn't, for 18 years, one of the top three givers of our church. Last year, I was the number one giver in our church. I wish it wasn't me. I wish somebody would beat me. But my point is, I'm gonna give, and I'm gonna lead the way in giving. And, uh, and so, what I'm, what I'm trying to say is, the heretical part might be, that you might say, well, you know, am I, am I called to preach? I have a gift to preach. Am I, am I called to be an apostle? I have a gift of an apostle as a founder. Am I called to teach? Well, I can teach. Am I an evangelist? Well, I had strike force. I've still got strike force 31 years going into public schools and helping people uh, reach their communities. I mean, there's very few ministries that go into public schools now that help churches do that. We still do that after 31 years. So my point is, is that you can, you've, you've got to know what your fingerprint is. And I started with that and I'll end with that so that you can leave the imprint that God's called you to leave. And I, I um, you know, uh, our track is a little bit different, but we are a church planter and uh, we wanna just help expand the kingdom of God, amen? So one last question, we got one minute. So yes, sir. Okay. As a church planter, my greatest win at this season of my life, I could, I could go back at different seasons, it's different things. At this season, all three of my children are pastors with me. It's my greatest win. It's one thing, if, if your children choose to serve the Lord, that's a dream come true. But it's heaven on earth when they want to serve with you. So the fact that they're all pastors with me, that's my greatest win, that my children want to be with us. Uh, and the greatest win too is her right here, 508 months. That's the greatest win. Um, my greatest, did you say my greatest challenge? Okay, 
uh, my son was 16 years, or I'm sorry, 14 years old. And I had a little white Corvette, 81 Corvette, red seats, big boom box in the back. We'd go for drives. And one day he said, this is around 2002. He said, dad, what's wrong? I looked at him, I said, what do you mean, son? He goes, I can tell something's bothering you. And I'd never really talked about my problems or anything with my kids, but he was 14. So I thought, well, he can handle it. I said, Josh, I'm just going through something. I said, there's a guy that came to our church. He was so excited. And I said, he lasted four months. I said, he, he told me, man, I want to leave my job. I want to be a pastor with you. I'm, I'm, I'm so excited. And I said, it just took him four months to leave the church. And I said, I just have a, such a hard time. With, he, he was the guy that I had won to the Lord when he was a, a young person. Had become a successful business guy. Then when I started a church, I'm not trying to not go into all the story, but, but I'd won him to the Lord when he was a, a kid. And now later he's a six plus figure guy in the business world. He, I start this church. He comes to it. Oh, this is my dream come true. He's a Timothy. He says, I want, I, I want to leave my, I want to be on, on staff with you. I go, no, 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 no. I said, just wait. Just, I said, just be in the church. Just, I, I said, I need people to resource the vision. I don't need to be paying you. So, so long story short, he, I said, Josh, he left after four months. And I said, it just hurts my heart. I said, because I love him and I love people. About 60 seconds passed and my son said this. He said, dad, you know, some friends are for a reason, some are for a season and some are for a lifetime. Let it go. I started crying. I looked at him, I said, Josh, you have just healed my soul. That's the greatest for 18 years. That's the hardest thing. It's still hard. I had a guy two weeks ago, been with me 15 years, makes me emotional, came to me and said, I've been with you 15 years, but I just feel like it's a different season for us and we gotta go. And you know, when you do life with people and you pour into people and you love people, so that's my greatest challenge. My greatest challenge is, to, it was actually my last point on this, was catch and release. In other words, be to that person in that season what God's called you to be, and then if they feel like they gotta go. You see, I'll, I'll, I said I was gonna leave you that last, this is the last, last, last story. We'd been dating for six years, she comes to me in college. We dated all through high school, all through college. We were sophomores in college. And she said, I feel like I need to date around. I went, what? She goes, yeah, I feel like I need to date around. I said, okay. I went to my then best friend, who today is a pastor in Atlanta. And he was the quarterback of the football team. I was a basketball player. I said, hey, Sheila feels like she wants to date around. And after six years, I want the best for her. And I said, the bottom line is, if it's not me, you're the best guy I know. So if I were you, I would ask her out. Before the day was over. I was walking and we were just talking and I said to him, um, or he, he said, yeah, I was talking to Danny and we were golfing together and I told him, hey, we're not together anymore. So he could ask you out. And I thought, you know, he's always liked you and that, you know, he would be great, you know, for you guys to go out. And I was like, what? How did you know he asked me out? And he goes, what? He asked you out. I said, isn't that what you just said? Because before the day was over, his best friend had asked me out. <laughs> so here's the deal. That Friday night, I go to a Mexican food place with all my buddies that I was never with because we were always together on Friday night. By the way, we were all best friends. And I look in there and she's sitting with him in a booth. And so we all walk over there and my friends start talking to him and I look at her and I said, now listen, I whispered this in her ear. You just take all the time you need because I love you. I believe I'm gonna marry you, but you just enjoy my best friend because y'all are both my best friends. And by the way, I want what's best for you more than I want you with me. That's how I'm with church people. This guy that just left me after 15 years Here's what he knows. And that's why we have a good parting. I want what's best for you more than I want you with me. And it's been one of the most difficult things 
all 18 years because you build relationship with people, you serve with people, and then something changes in their life. Maybe they have kids, their kids, and, they, and their kids, you, they may be with you 12 years, but their kids grow up and they don't like the youth group. And all of a sudden, you're not in relationship with them anymore because their kids want to go to another church. Crazy stuff like that. So that's been the most challenging so thing. So I would just say this too, as it relates to, to even my journey in that, is that there, it's so great because when that does happen, when you think people were lifetimers, you think, oh, they're going to be with me for a long time. You, you really are able to resolve it in your mind. You thought, you know what? They were just here for a season and they were part of the scaffolding that got us to where we are today. And so when you stay in an attitude of gratitude of what they brought in the time that they brought and you're grateful for that time, then you can release them and let them go and truly want the best for them. Yeah. And again, that becomes a part of the culture of your church. You want the best for people more than you want people with you. Amen? Hope y'all enjoyed it. It was an honor. Thank you.